Thanks, Steve. Well, hey, I'm Ben. I'm one of the pastors here at Auckland EV, and if I haven't met you, uh, it's great to have you here, particularly if you're newish, if you haven't been around at church for long. We're actually going to be looking at the church today, God's plans for the church, what God's doing through the church, and I'm going to pray now that God would help us to see what he's doing. So join me, let's pray. Father God, we've come here this morning um, gathered around your word to hear from you. We've come here this morning to praise Jesus, to make much of him, to remind each other of what he's done. And now we come and expect you to work through your word by your spirit in us. Would you help us to hear, uh, hear who you are, what you're doing among us as we gather as your church? Um, would you give us hearts that are ready to, to change and, and be shaped and molded by your word? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what you value shapes your choices. That's a fair statement, right? What you value shapes your choices. If you value your family, it'll shape the way that you make choices throughout the week. What time you finish work, what career you have, what you do with your spare time. Uh, it'll shape where you go on the weekends, those kind of things. If you value your health, that will make its way into the kind of choices, the daily habits and choices that you make. You know, for me, I um, wanted to kind of get fit again and be healthier to play with my kids and run around with them and stuff. And so I joined a gym at the start of the year. Has anyone else had that new gym, like New Year's resolution kind of thing this year? That was just me. Coming out of the pandemic, I was pretty unfit. I was a few people. And I joined. I just, I'm not one to like kind of half do things. So I joined a CrossFit gym, which is like... <laughs> Which is like uh, high intensity, varied exercise, you know, that kind of thing. And I tell you what, I had to be reminded myself on the regular because, man, my body was in so much pain, and it still is. Uh, but CrossFit's heaps of fun. Come and talk to me about it later if you're interested in that kind of thing. Um, I had to remind myself of my values in the moment to make the right choices. Um, but sometimes, actually, we fail to value the right things. You know, we value something that we ought not value, or we value something or someone that then lets us down and doesn't value us in the same way. That's part of the kind of human condition. We struggle to sometimes know what it is to rightly value in our lives. Did you know, I was, I was looking this up the other day, uh, I was looking at stocks, right? And I was looking at Monster Energy. Does anyone drink Monster Energy? I, so I, I don't know who drinks Monster Energy. If you're a, uh, no, no hate on Monster Energy drinkers. I've tried it once and it wasn't very tasty. But in the year 2000, Monster Energy stocks, you could buy one for 10 cents. You could, you could, and it was just, it weren't worth very much. It was this tiny little thing. And then fast forward to today, and the same stock is now worth like $83 per stock. If you had invested like 100, hundreds of dollars back then, you'd be a millionaire today. See, we, we, we didn't see the value of it back then, and it's only in the future that we've actually been able to see the value of it. And I think what we're going to see today, we're going to look at the church, and we're going to see that although maybe the church doesn't look like it has much value to some people today, we're going to see the infinite and amazing value of the church. I think that's the question that Ephesians 3 asks for us. Um, lots of people don't seem to value the church today. It, it's... 
it's a bunch of reasons. I, there's a few different reasons. I, I was thinking about it. I was like, some people think the church doesn't work anymore. They're sick of churches that fail them, particularly the leadership of churches. Um, you know, when the leadership of a church fails, it's this great tragedy, isn't it? Or there's people that think the church just isn't relevant to their lives. The church is outdated. It's judgmental. It's hypocritical. Uh, at best, they would say, well, it's good for you if, church, if you like church, but I'm not interested. No, thank you. Or, or some people, Christians, would say that they're fed up of the kind of institutions of the church. They'd say, I'm a Christian. I have a relationship with Jesus, but the organized kind of Sunday thing, uh, it's not really for me. Now, you're here this morning, and so I'm, I'm not sure where all of us are at this morning with how we're thinking about the church, but the, the big thing that I think God wants us to see from Ephesians 3 is how he thinks about the church. And we're going to see that it's central to God's plans. It displays his power in the world, it displays his grace and his kindness, and it displays his wisdom. And so this morning, my task, what I'm going to try and do, is to change what you value. It won't just be me doing it. It's the word of God uh, at work through his spirit in you as his word is preached to shape what you love to be like, more like what he loves, to shape what you value to be more like what he values. So if you've been following along with us over the last few weeks of Ephesians, we've been working through the book, and we've seen some wonderful truths, haven't we? Through the first few chapters, we've seen how God chose us to be part of his family before he even made the world. We've seen how he's reconciled us to himself through the death and resurrection of Jesus, his death in our place for our sins so that we could be part of his family. And we saw last week in Ephesians 2 that the old system of relating to God, um, ethnic Israel relating to God through the sacrificial system, through the temple, through the commandments, that's been put away. And now that Anyone has access to God through Jesus, regardless of their ethnicity or culture or anything in their background. And, and we've seen that wonderful truth, haven't we? That God's chosen people is now those who put their trust in Jesus and have faith in him. People from every na nation who repent and believe the good news of the gospel. And Paul starts off in chapter 3, reflecting on those truths. He's kind of summing up what we've seen so far in the book of Ephesians. And he starts off in, in verse 1. Have your Bible open. We're going to do a bit of flicking around in Ephesians 3, but also back in chapter 2 and chapter 1, so make sure you have it open. He starts off in chapter one or chapter 3, verse 1, and he says, For this reason, because of what I've just told you in chapters 1 and 2. Um, but then Paul, he's about to pray. We see that. Come down to verse 14 with me. Um, you can see in verse 14, he says, For this reason I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven. He's about to like, pray for them based on what he's said in verses in chapter 1 and 2. But before he gets there, his mind starts to wander. Does that ever happen to you? You know, he's about to pray and then, oh, I'm just thinking of something else. We're human, that happens to all of us. It happened to Paul here. Before he gets to his prayer, he circles back around to give them three more things he wants to remind them of and, and tell them before he prays for them. He wants to remind them of who he is, the man, Paul, the mystery of the gospel, and how it's been made known and what it reveals to us about God. So that's where we're going to go this morning. Let's start off by looking at the mystery. As it was read out, did you notice three times Paul talks about this mystery 
We see it there in verse 3. The mystery is made known to me. Verse 4, we see it. Uh, understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's added Christ into this language of the mystery now. And then in verse 9, we get it again. Uh, to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God. See, we need to understand what Paul means here by this language of mystery if we're going to understand what he's trying to say. See, in English, when we speak about a mystery, we're thinking about something that's puzzling, that's secretive, that's kind of closed off and hidden. But in Greek, this, this word for mystery, it was a word that they used when a secret had been made known, when something that we didn't understand has now been revealed and now we have understanding. That's, oh, it's a mystery, as in it's something that I didn't know that now I do. It's that moment in Scooby-Doo. Anyone Scooby-Doo fans? You know, like unmask the villain, and and it always turns out to be the janitor or the you know the someone that's been slighted. And oh, we it was secret, and now we know who it is. It's that kind of moment. And this language of mystery. This isn't the first time Paul's kind of talked about the language of mystery. If if you've been tracking along with us, you remember in chapter one he used the language of mystery. See, pick it up with me in chapter 1, verse 9. Flick back there. He said, He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in him. See, it's this uh, God's made known his will to bring all things together in Christ. And remember, we, we saw that all things together in Christ, what he's meaning is all things under the headship or the lordship of Christ. That's what he means there. And he wants to unpack it here in chapter 3 a little bit more for us. See, he, while he's doing it, he goes in verse 3, he, he wants to help us to know that the only reason he knows it is because God has made it known to him. That's why he says, The mystery made known to me by revelation as I have written briefly, as I have briefly written above. By reading this, you are able to understand my insight. See, the only reason Paul can share this with us is because God has revealed it to him. It's this, this shift in language, and we see it there in the end of verse 4. It's now the mystery of Christ. So it's the mystery of God's will in chapter 1, and now we see it's the mystery in verse 3, and now in verse 4, the mystery of Christ. At verse 5, he goes on with it. He says, This was not made known to people in other generations, as it is now revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. He's kind of saying, well, you know, people throughout history didn't know about this, but now the mystery has been made known through the apostles and prophets, those that hear the word of God and speak it to others. And, and Paul, particularly here when he's thinking of apostles, he's thinking of the 12, the 12 apostles of Jesus that walked with him, that listened with him, that, that learned from him. And he includes himself in there as one who had, he didn't, live, he didn't follow Jesus while he was alive, but he had this um, post-Jesus' resurrection experience of hearing from Jesus. And you can chase that up in Acts 9 when he was on the road to Damascus. And he gets to verse 6 and he unpacks with clarity what the mystery is. See in verse 6, he says, The Gentiles are co-heirs, members of the same body, and partners in the promise in Jesus Christ, in Christ Jesus, through the gospel. So what is the mystery? It's the mystery of God's will, it's the mystery of Christ. And here we see that it's the mystery of the gospel. It's that through Jesus, God has reconciled himself. 
In his death and resurrection, he's brought us all in to be part of his family, united with God and united together as his people. And Gentiles here, uh, remember, it's just the language for nations. I don't know why they've, no one uses the word Gentiles in their kind of everyday life, do they, these days? They clearly just said the nations or the, the peoples, everyone who wasn't Jewish. Now, he's saying, we all have unity together in Jesus. See, it's, this verse has puzzled people because they've thought, well, didn't people know beforehand some of what God was going to do, like in the Old Testament? Didn't they know that kind of thing? And I think... What he's trying to say here is that no one knew that God's plan was to bring about a new community, not made up now of ethnic Israel, but of a diverse community from all around the nations of the world through faith in Jesus, without any distinction, without any terms that would set them apart, united to Christ. See, that's what's been made known. That's the mystery it's basically, you know, in, in verse 7, he goes on to say, I was made a servant of this gospel. The mystery is the gospel. It's the way that God has reconciled people to himself. And it's the fact that he's revealed it to Paul in this special and unique way to share with the nations, with each of us. Which is why I think Paul wants to remind us through here, if you've noticed, a bit about who he is, the man Paul. We see in, in verse 1, he's a prisoner of Christ on their behalf. See, Paul's not literally imprisoned by Christ. He's a prisoner of Christ in the sense that he's a prisoner in Rome at this point. But because of what he's been saying about Christ, because of Christ is why he's in prison. And in verse 2, we see that he was a recipient of God's grace. Um, you know, he says, You have heard, haven't you, about the administration of God's grace that he gave to me for you? See, Paul got this special mission from God in Acts 9 on the road to Damascus to be a light to the Gentiles, to go and share the gospel with all the nations. He's someone in verse 3 who's received a special knowledge of the mystery of how God is at work bringing all peoples to himself. And in verse 7 he says that he's a servant of this gospel. See, as we've gone through, um, you know, if you're writing a letter to a group of friends and you were in prison... Do you think you'd open with that? Do you think that would be like the kind of thing that you opened with? But it takes Paul until chapter 3 to kind of remind them of this truth. He says, you know, hey guys, just want to let you know I'm a prisoner. And in verse 12 he says, I'm, I'm in chains. Um, why is it that he waits so long in the letter to kind of let these people that he cares about know that he's in prison? I think it's because he wants to remind them that even despite his immediate situation where he is in prison, that he wants to say it's not about him and what his situation is, but it's about God and his grace and glory to everyone. It's about God's plan and God's power, how God's at work through his world. See, Paul was in house arrest in Rome, probably at this point. This is um, in the early AD 60s. And the Roman authority, the Jewish, the Jewish leaders, they were fed up with Paul for preaching these exact truths that he's been preaching throughout chapters 1 and 2. That the Jewish kind of ethnic legal and law system, the commandments, the sacrifices, the temple, all those things are made, he says, of no effect. Because now we come to God in Christ Jesus. And the, the Jewish leaders, they didn't like that. They were threatening his power. And so they were threatening to riot against Paul. And the Roman authorities, this is a Roman colony, Ephesus, they were afraid that Paul was going to disturb the peace. And that's the last thing that they would have wanted. 
And so they, for the sake of the peace of the empire, they arrest him, they put him on trial in a local kind of court, and then he gets, eventually all the way appeals it, appeals it, until he gets sent to Rome to be under trial by Caesar. And so here he is waiting for, under house arrest for his trial. You can chase this up in the book of Acts from chapter 21 on, his kind of uh, arrest and trials as they go along. And so he's sitting here, shipped to Rome in prison. But he's been so captivated by Christ that what matters most to him is not his own situation, but God, God's plans, God's power in the world. See, he's one sent by God to proclaim the mystery now made known. And he says it again there in verse 8, doesn't he? It's, the grace was given to me, the least of all the saints, to proclaim to the Gentiles the incalculable riches of Christ and to shed light for all about the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. See, Paul in prison can't stop talking about God's power and God's plans, God's incalculable riches, God's grace. And and it's a, a model for us, isn't it, as the church? It's a model for us of the things that kind of dominate Paul's mind is God's grace and love and plans, even in a really hard situation. Here we are 2,000 years, give or take, later on from this moment. And we're being blessed by these words once again. He doesn't, he doesn't just write to kind of complain and tell them about all the hard things in his life, although they were really hard, but he keeps his focus on God's grace and power. I think as we read this, it should fill us with confidence. I don't know what your week's been like. I don't know what your situation is like at the moment, but... Take confidence from Paul's example here to keep proclaiming the grace and power of God even in hard situations. See, God's plan always goes ahead. His power can't be stopped. And Paul's kind of filled. He has every right, doesn't he, here, to be this kind of down and out, defeated kind of victim. He is in so many ways. He's imprisoned. But what's his tone as we've seen throughout the first three three chapters of Ephesians? It's warm. It's thankful. It's kind of open-hearted. It's encouraging of others whose situations are nowhere near as bad as his is. It's confidence in God's power and love. It's a lived experience of the gospel that he's been preaching for the last couple of chapters. See, the Puritan Richard Sibbs, he put it like this. He says, there is more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. I want to encourage you this morning, if you've come and you're feeling downhearted, if you're going through hard situations, particularly because of Jesus, that be reminded of that truth. There's more mercy in Christ than there is sin in us. That's the gospel, riches that are too vast to ever fully explore, too deep, too wide deeper than we could ever imagine. We'll never come to the end of God's mercy and grace in Jesus. And so I want to encourage us firstly, let's be a community that's marked by this kind of thankfulness, by this conviction of God's love, even in tough times. See, I think one thing that this will lead us to as a church community is gentleness. I've heard it said, gentleness is the felt experience of grace, of mercy, which is mercy not getting the punishment that you deserve, or grace, getting something that you didn't deserve. 
Gentleness is the felt experience of those realities. See, inwardly, gentleness is this kind of uh, inner experience of how God has treated us. That's the gospel, isn't it? He hasn't treated us how we deserve. He's given us the precious gift of his son. But externally, it leads to us treating others the same way, with, with a great concern for them, a tenderness, an awareness of how they're going. See, Paul continually puts himself forward as this kind of model of gentleness, of the felt experience of God's grace to him, and, it, and he puts himself forward like that as a model for us to follow as the church. How are we going at being a gentle church? You'll know, particularly when you chat to someone that you disagree with on something, or someone that you don't necessarily get on with, how are you going at being gentle? Here's a great reminder for us to grow in our gentleness and kindness and compassion towards each other as a church. See, why has God done it? Why has he revealed the mystery to Paul? Why has he enacted throughout history to this moment where the mystery would be revealed of the gospel of all peoples reconciled to God in Christ? Well, he did it to show us something about himself. This is the second point. God has made himself known through the church. See verse 10 with me. He says, This is so, this, the administration of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things, this is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. Wow, what a statement. All of the truths of the gospel and the mystery revealed, everything that he's been kind of saying up until this point, he says it's been happening this way so that we might know God's multifaceted wisdom in the church. See, if I was going to expect him to say something after reading verses 1 to 9, reflecting on the last two chapters of Ephesians, I would expect him to say God's wisdom is made known through the gospel. But he he doesn't. You know, see what he says? He says, through the church. It's, it's through this church, this group of people that when rulers and authorities in the heavens, I think he's talking there about spiritual beings who are created and exist kind of in the, the spiritual realm. So I think particularly angels, demons, those kind of things. We're not abstract from the spiritual. There's more to our world than just the physical when those created spiritual beings look at us gathering together, they see God's multifaceted wisdom. They see this new community of people gathered together to hear from Jesus, gathered around Christ Jesus, and they see that, wow, that's God's wisdom and plan from before the creation of the world to gather us together. That people from throughout the whole world would come together to Praise Jesus to listen to him, to hear from him, to encourage and love each other, reveals God's multifaceted wisdom. He could have done it in a million different ways, but this is the way that he's chosen to do us, by gathering us as his people. See, God makes himself known through the church. <coughs> I want to take a step back and just clarify for us what I mean by the church. What do you think of when you think of church? You might think of the building, although we don't own a building, so we're less likely to kind of think of building as church. But you know, you, you talk to some people, oh, my church, and what they mean is oh, the building that I meet at. 
Or you might think, when you think of church, you might think of denomination, like, you know, the Anglican church, the Presbyterian church. Or you might think of, oh, my church, and what you really mean is my church, the leaders of the church. But it's not any of those things. The word for church is this, kind of, it's this idea of a verbal noun. It's, it, it's a, a group of people who do something. It's, it's the gathering, the word ecclesia, the word for church that Paul uses here. It just means to be gathered. It means a group of gathered ones, an assembly. Or the other word you know, we use is congregation, where if you ever thought what it actually means, we're, just, we're congregating, we're getting together. It's, it's this gathered people of God. That's what the church is. In fact, this isn't even a technical word. The first time this word ecclesia, this gathering, is used in the Bible, it's used in Acts 19, and it's used to describe like a riotous mob in Ephesus. It says the gathering, this word, this, the, the assembly, they were confused and about to riot. It's not even a kind of religious word. But that's what church is. It's us when we gather around God, around Jesus, around his word. <laughs> and there's a little bit of confusion here because Paul talks about church in kind of, there's two ways that he talks about it. The first is what I'll call the universal church or the heavenly church, you could call it. And, and in Ephesians, Paul talks about this facet of the church or this reality of the church a few times. We saw it in chapter 1, verse 22. You know, Christ is raised from the, from the dead, seated at the right hand, and uh, every, uh, where are we? Far above every ruler and authority, power and dominion, every title given. And he subjected everything under his feet, verse 22, and appointed him as head over everything for the church. It's this idea of this kind of universal reality. Or, or in verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, he says, He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. It's this idea of the heavenly church, the universal church. See, Jesus is there physically ruling and reigning all things, but we are there spiritually, seated with him spiritually. That's the first way. It's this, the universal heavenly gathering of all people, past, present, and even future, who are saved and who are united to Christ and who are his. That's the first kind of way that Paul uses church. But the second way that he talks about the church is local physical gatherings of believers, like, like us here today, which express that heavenly reality. See, the Christians, for Christians, for God's people, are the heavenly reality that we're church expresses itself physically, locally, as we gather. And, and you, you might have noticed this as we've read through bits of the letters that Paul writes. He, he nearly always uses the plural to talk about the church. He says, you know, the churches in Galatia, the churches in Thessalonica, the church, that kind of language. Um, and, and it's actually the reverse of what the heavenly gathering is. See, in heaven... Christ is there physically ruling and reigning, and we're kind of united to him spiritually. But down here on earth, we gather physically together, but Christ is here spiritually by his spirit in each of us, by his word as it's proclaimed and goes out. That's the word of Christ. See, here in the local gathering, we gather physically, but Christ is with us spiritually. The universal church becomes visible in the local church. When we show up and gather as Christians to hear from Jesus, to gather around his word, to sing his praises, that's what we do. See, to be a Christian, you could say, is to be a gathered one. 
It's who you are now. It's what we saw in the second half of Ephesians 2 last week, isn't it? You can't read Ephesians or the, the Bible, the, the whole of the New Testament particularly, but particularly Ephesians, without understanding some of the kind of corporate gathered responsibility that we have to each other. At the Reformation, there was a, a right push away from the church and the institution of the church, and people want to say, well, actually, it's about um, whether I have faith in Jesus or not. And that's true, right? We don't want to, it's not about being part of a church that makes you right with Jesus. But there is this corporate responsibility that we have. See, you might say, well, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. And that's true. Isn't it? That's, that's what we want to hold to. It's about faith in Jesus, repentance from our sins, belief that he really did die for our sins and raised to life so that we can have hope with him for eternity. But it's kind of like saying, well, I don't have to be in water to be a fish. Right? It's true, isn't it? Like being in water isn't what makes a fish a fish. I don't know what's the essential fishiness of a fish. It's maybe it's it's fins, it's scales, it's an ability to breathe underwater. I don't know what I don't know how to classify the what technically is a fish. Like what are those little um the mud mud kippers? They're like fish but they have legs. Like are they fish or I don't know. But you know, yeah, I'm I'm getting sidetracked here. Water isn't what makes a fish a fish. But fish thrive in water. They were made for water. They, they, without water, they won't last very long. That's like us, Christians, and the church. We were gathered together by God and made to be his gathered people, united to each other for community and fellowship. See, you can't, you can't just do the Christian life on your own. That's what we see here in Ephesians 3. He saved us into a community, a family, a gathered people of God. Christ is the cornerstone and we are the, the temple, his temple being built around him. In Ephesians 5, he's going to talk about um, the church as the bride and, and Christ as the, the husband. It's kind of, that's what marriage points to. We're going to get there in a few weeks. See, if you start to see church like this, won't that shape the way that you value it? See, what would stop you from gathering with God's people when you see that you were saved into this gathered group of Christians called the church? I mean, sure, there might be some things that come up that make it impossible. Sickness, you need to take holidays, big life events. But if you see church valuable as God sees it, if you see who you now are, that there won't be very much that stops you from gathering with God's people. See, don't to have to make the decision every week on whether you're going to come to church or not. Don't get to like Saturday or Sunday morning and go, oh, I'm going to come this week. Oh, maybe, maybe not. Because you might, like things come up in our lives. We, we get tired, we get sick, we get the kids are cranky. I could just kind of watch on the live stream. No, decide now to value church the way that God values it. So you could go home today and you could make a calendar event on your phone. Every Sunday from now into eternity or until you die or until Jesus returns, <laughs> Sunday, 10, 15, blocked out, blocked out, blocked out, blocked out, blocked out, blocked out. From now, just an ongoing event in your calendar. Paul wants us to lift our eyes and see church the way that God sees it. That when we gather, we're showing something beautiful about God. 
So I think we've seen three ways in particular that God makes himself known through the church. Two in the previous chapters and, and one that we're going to get to in verse 10. The first, the first one that we've seen through Ephesians about the church, so I think this is a bit of a teaching moment about what church is in case um, some of you might not have heard this before, but bear with me if you have. The first one, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. Flip there with me. He says, God exercised this power in Christ by raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens. What do we see there? It's God's resurrection power. And it's the very same power that in chapter 2, verse 6, he also raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. That's the same resurrection power that raised us to life. That's the heavenly reality that we express when we gather physically here today. The resurrection power of God is made known as we gather as his church. See, every time we gather together, we remind ourselves of God's power. That this is the God that we follow is a God who raises people from spiritual death to life. And our hope is in the fact that we will not stay in the ground when we die, but that he will raise us up on the last day for eternity with him. And, and when we gather, we experience that. It's one thing to kind of say it and know it, but we gather together as this people and go, wow, God has saved us. It's not just me that this has happened in. His resurrection power is all around me. We sing it together to each other. That's one of the reasons why we, we sing. We're not just singing to God. We're reminding each other of those truths. See, we come together and God's power is made known through the church. The second one we saw in uh, Ephesians chapter 2 in, in verse 7. He's just, he's just said, you know, he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavens in Christ Jesus. Chapter 2, verse 7. So that in the coming ages, he might display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness. See, God has made known to us his kindness and his grace when we gather together as his church. Every time we gather, we're reminded that God hasn't treated us as we deserve. That's the heart of the gospel. That's why we gather and sing and praise God. That's why we come to hear from his word. And, and we don't just do it alone. That would be draining, wouldn't it? If it was just sometimes just you on your own, continually reminded of how sh short you have fallen from God and how much grace he's poured out to you. But no, we come together and we're reminding each other of that truth and we're living that out and we're imperfect and you know, we, we still sin even now, but yet we're continually reminding each other of the need that we have for Christ to turn to him to receive grace once again. There's this reality that I can know truth from the word, but when I gather and have someone else express that same truth to me, I see the grace and kindness of God in new and fresh ways. That's what we do every week here at church. That's what we try to do every week in our connect groups to remind each other of God's grace, isn't it? As we come vulnerable, share how we're going, and we pray for each other. See, God's made known his grace and kindness to us as we gather as his people. And, and thirdly, we've, we've seen this one in, in chapter 3, verse 10. God has made his multifaceted wisdom known through the church. 
See it there. This is so that God's multifaceted wisdom may now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in the heavens. See, every Sunday as we gather, angels and demons, spiritual beings, they look on at us right now and they say, wow, isn't God amazing? I can't believe that that was God's plan from the beginning to start with Israel and then bring in these other nations and have them all gathered and united in Christ Jesus together and how he's moving all things to this new creation where we'll gather with Jesus in eternity, praising him forever. How amazing is God? How amazing is his plans and his wisdom? See, as the gospel spreads throughout the world and new communities pop up all over the world, it's as if we're kind of living out this great drama. The world is the stage and Christians are the actors and and God has written the play. And, And the audience, these spiritual angels and demons, they look on at what we're doing and they see God's brilliance. They see his wisdom, his power and his kindness as we gather together as his people. And they say, wow, they're doing it again next Sunday. Wow, and they're continually amazed at what God is doing through us as we gather as his people. See, God has made himself known through the church to us, to spiritual rulers and authorities and powers, to the world. That's how he's making himself known. It's why Paul in verse 12 and 13 encourages them to have boldness and confidence and to not be discouraged even despite the fact that he's in chains. Why? Because it's through the church that God is doing this miraculous work. Paul's in prison, but he started this church in Ephesus by the grace of God, and it's growing and flourishing. And through that, God's plans, his wisdom, and his power are being made known through the universe. See, even in chains, Paul can celebrate that. It's amazing what God is doing through us, his gathered people. And with all that in mind with all that he's just said in chapters 1, 2, and now this little circle back in chapter 3 in mid-prayer, Paul now turns to pray for them. He prays for spiritual might. Now, he actually prays for might and for love, but I was trying to stick with the M theme for my outline, so, um, you know, go with me here. Uh, Pick it up with me in verse 14. He says, For this reason, it's, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. He's acknowledging God as the one from whom we all come. And he says, he asked for two things on his knees. And, and even being on your knees, we read that, it's not too weird. But for a Jewish kind of culture, that would have been super weird. People always prayed standing up. You, you think about some of the times when people pray on their knees, there's Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. It's, it's those kind of key, emotional, powerful moments. And Paul's saying, I'm praying on my knees for you guys, for the church. And he prays for two things. He prays for power or might and for love. Let's see the first one, power. Verse 16, I pray that he might grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit, and that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. See, notice first where the strength comes from. It comes according to the riches of God's glory. And Paul knows the God who he's praying to is full of glory and grace, and that God has every ability to meet this prayer. There's no use praying to someone who can't act on your prayers, but Paul knows who God is, what he's done, and so he can pray to him with confidence. And he prays that they might be strengthened in their, in their innermost being through his spirit. 
And I take it that's the same thing that he repeats when he says, by Christ dwelling in their hearts through faith. See, how does, how does Jesus dwell in our hearts? Well, it's through his spirit in us. I think, I think he's kind of saying the same thing there. Uh, and what he's praying is that Christ would take up residence in our lives, that he would dwell, that he would make his home in our hearts to strengthen us, to grow us, to change us, to help us live out the Christian life. See, without Christ in our hearts, changing us by his spirit, none of this is possible. None of these truths and realities that he's preached through the last two chapters are possible. But he says, with Christ in you, it's definitely possible. That you can live and grow and change in the power of God and in his spirit. That's the first thing he prays for them. And the second one we get is love. See, pick it up, second second part of verse 17. He says, I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and width and height and depth of God's love, and to know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. See, Paul's prayer is that there would be a community of love who know God's love. And he uses two metaphors here to kind of describe that love. It's like a deep-rooted tree or a house kind of established with firm foundations. See, the unseen cause of their stability on the surface is the deep roots or the firm foundations underneath. And Paul's saying that the ground in which the roots go down into, the foundations which they're built in, is love. That's the community that we want to be here at Auckland EV, isn't it? Where love is the soil and the foundations of our church community with each other. And it's from those foundations that together we would be able to know God's love. See, our love here functions as this kind of expression or overflow of God's love to us. So that together when we help each other gather and remind ourselves of God's love for us, Christ's love for us, that that's when we get to experience the kind of totality of the length and width and height and depth of Christ's love. It's this love that goes far deeper than we could ever know into the fullness of the God himself who is love. That's our goal as a community, isn't it? See, it's one thing for Paul to kind of teach them things about love and God's love. It's another thing here for him to pray for them, to pray that they would know this kind of a love, that they would live it out among each other. And that's our prayer for us as a church. That's what we give ourselves to. See, do you, do you notice there he says, he says it's the, um, where are we? That you, verse 18, may be able to comprehend with all the saints. There's this corporate, communal exercise that happens as we kind of try and understand God's love when we speak it to each other, when we remind each other of it, when we sing it to each other, when we come and sit and hear it together. See, that's what we do as we gather as the church. Peter Jensen, the um, He's an Anglican archbishop over in Sydney, a good guy. He, he put it like this. He says, The church is a gathering of God's people in order to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in his word and by the power of the Holy Spirit so to grow into the likeness of Christ in love. Did you pick that up? I'm going to say it again for us. It's a bit, a bit of a long sentence. The church is a gathering of God's people 
in order to meet the Lord Jesus Christ in his word and by the power of his Holy Spirit to grow into the likeness of Christ in love. That's what we do, isn't it? We gather together to meet Jesus in his word and by his spirit grow in our ability to love others as he makes us more like Jesus. See, this kind of love and strength and growth to love others and live the Christian life, it's far beyond what we could have ever possibly dreamed of or imagined outside of God. See, that's what Paul kind of ends with here. He says, Now to him who is able to do above and beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. See, this kind of a love, we, we couldn't even understand it. I don't know if you've experienced this, but there are, when you've been hurt, you, it's, it's hard to even think, well, how can I forgive that person? How could I love them again? But yet in Christ Jesus, in the church, he does that work of reconciliation, forgiveness, and love time and time again. And, and what's the purpose there we see in verse 21? It's so that God would be glorified in the church. So that when we gather and express that love and remind each other of Christ's love for us, that it points to God and his glory in saving us as his people, gathering us together. See, God's doing this work in us today, declaring these truths about his power, his grace and kindness, and his wisdom. As we gather, we're sitting under the word, meeting with Jesus in his spirit together, and he's changing us. He's shaping our values. He's making us more like Jesus. And he's calling us to be part of his grand plan to bring all things together under Christ. As we get to live that out now as this little kind of slice of the heavenly reality here as the local church here at Auckland EV. Let's pray that we would keep doing that, yeah? Let's pray. <coughs> Father God, we've seen this morning what you think of the church. We might think of ourselves as humble and weak and um, needy, and we are in so many ways all of those things, but when you see us gather as your people, we're your treasure, we're your bride, we're your body, we're your temple. Father God, would you strengthen us by your spirit this morning to help us to love each other and to know your love? Would you help us to see church clearly and value it the way that you do? You're able to do more than we ever ask or think even or imagine. And we're so grateful that you have rooted and grounded us in your love. Father God, you are building your church on Jesus, on his word, and it will never fail. We look forward to when we get to not just meet physically as this kind of expression of your church, but spend eternity with you in heaven. That's what we look forward to now. We pray that you would help us to keep growing in our love, growing in our Christ-likeness, growing in our confidence of you and your plans. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon recording from Auckland EV. We hope you found it helpful. And if you'd like to find out more about Jesus or about church, we'd love to get in touch. So check out our website at aucklandev.co.nz for more details. Thanks for listening.